Part Two, Chapter Twenty Three of the Daisy Chain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brooke Favorite, www.alongsidemom.com. The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Mary Young, Part Two, Chapter Twenty Three. Of lowly fields you think no scorn, yet gayest gardens would adorn and grace wherever set, home seated in your lowly bower, or wedded a transplanted flower, I bless you, Margaret. Charles Lamb George Rivers had an antipathy to Lady's last words keeping the horses standing, and his wife and sister dutifully seated themselves in the carriage at once, without an attempt to linger. Four of the young gentlemen were to walk across to Abbotstoke and dine at the Grange, and Tom, who, reasoning from analogy, had sent on his black tie and agate studs, was so dismally disconcerted on finding that Norman treated his own going as a matter of course, that Richard, whose chief use of his right of primogeniture was to set himself aside, discovered that he was wanted at home, and that Tom would be much better at the Grange, offering at the same time to send Norman's dressing-things by Dr. Spencer. Which, observed Thomas, he would never have recollected for himself. Tom would have had to lend him the precious studs. He would not have had them. Who would wear imitation? I say, Tom, what did you give for them? Better ask what the Jew gave for them that bought them at Windsor Fair. Not a bad imitation, either. Pity they weren't Malachite. But, no doubt, the Jew thought green would be personal. As if they had any business to talk. Who didn't know a respectable stud when they saw it? Harry, especially, with his hat set on the back of his head, like a sailor on the stage— a leap to set it to rights, a skirmish knocking Tom nearly into the ditch. Fine experience of the stage, all came from Windsor Fair. Ay, Hector might talk, but didn't he pay a shilling to see the Irish giant? He wouldn't confess, but it was a famous take-in. Giant had potatoes in his shoes. Not he, he was seven feet ten high. Ay, when he stood upon a stool, Hector would swallow anything. Even the lady of a million postage stamps had not stuck in his throat. He had made Margaret collect for her. And had not Tom himself got a bottle of ointment to get the red out of his hair? Great fury. His hair wasn't red. Didn't want to change the color. Not half so red as Hector's own. What was it then? Lively auburn? But for fear of Norman's losing his bearings, Harry would fetch a carrot to compare. Better color than theirs could ever be. Then what was the ointment for? To produce whiskers? That was the reason Tom oiled himself like a loyalty islander. His hair was so shiny that Harry recommended a top-knot like theirs, etc. Norman was, like the others, in such towering glee, and took so full a share of the witticisms that were the more noisily applauded, the worse they were, that Harry suggested that old June had lost his way and found his spirits in Drydale. He must have met with a private grog-shop in the plantations, would not Tom confess— not he. It was all in private. He thought it was laughing-gas, or the reaction of being fried all the morning, holding forth in that town hall. He had longed to make a speech himself. No end of the good it would have done the old stagers to come out with something to the purpose. What would old Hoxton have thought of it? They shall dive for alligators, catch the wild goats by the beard, whistle to the cockatoos, and mock the hairy-faced baboon, worship mighty mumbo-jumbo in the mountains of the moon, I myself, in far Timbuktu, leopard's blood shall daily quaff, ride a tiger hunting, mounted on a thoroughbred giraffe. "'Not you, Tom,' cried Hector. 
you the swell the eaten fellow you to seek such horrid places you to haunt with squalid negroes blubber lips and monkey faces fool again the dream the fancy don't i know the words are mad for you count the grey barbarian lower than the brocus cad nay it is the consequence of misanthropy at the detection of the frauds of unsophisticated society said norman the edge of life is rusted the agate studs and whisker ointment left him very much disgusted perhaps it was miss rivers forsaking him was not that rather spider-hearted tom come harry it is time to have done we are getting into civilized society here's abbot stoke poor norman he is very far gone he takes that scarecrow for civilized society much better clothed than the society you have been accustomed to july what a prize his wardrobe would be to the black prince don't insult your betters which the scarecrow or the black prince norman tried to call his companions to order for they were close upon the village and he began to tax himself with unbecoming levity the effects of spirits pitched rather low which did not easily find their balance under unwonted exhilaration but harry's antics were less easily repressed than excited and if tom had not heard the grange clock strike half-past six and had not been afraid of not having time to array himself and watch over Harry's neckcloth, they would hardly have arrived in reasonable time. Dr. May had gone home, and there was no one in the drawing-room, but as Norman was following the boys upstairs, Flora opened her sitting-room door, and attracted his attention by silently putting her cold fingers into his hand, and drawing him into the room. "'Dear Norman, this is pleasant,' she said affectionately, but in a voice so sunken that all gladness seemed to be dead within, and the effect was far more mournful than if she had not attempted to smile congratulation. "'I will give you till Dr. Spencer comes,' she said. "'Then Norman can dress, and you must be a good child and come down to me.' The playfulness ill-suited the wan, worn face that seemed to have caught a grey tint from her rich poplin, her full toilet making the contrast almost more painful. And as she closed the door, her brother could only exclaim, "'Poor Flora!' "'She is so kind,' said the voice of the white figure that moved towards him. "'Oh, if we could comfort her!' "'I trust to her own kindness working comfort to her at last,' said Norman. "'But is she often thus?' "'Whenever she's not bearing up for George's sake,' said Meta, "'she never says anything when she is alone with me, "'only she does not struggle with her looks. "'It must be very trying for you.' nay i feel grateful to her for even so far relaxing the restraint if i could but do her any good you cannot help doing her good said norman meta sighed and shook her head slightly as she said she's so gentle and considerate i think this has been no fresh pain to her to-day but i cannot tell the whole day has been a strange intermixture the two strands of joy and grief have been very closely twisted said norman that rose is shedding its fragrant leaves in its glory, and there is much that should have chastened the overflowing gladness of to-day. "'As I was thinking,' whispered Meta, venturing nearer to him, and looking into his face with the sweet reliance of union in thought. She meant him to proceed, but he paused, saying, "'You were thinking?' "'I'd rather hear it from you. Was it not that we were taught to-day what is enduring, and gives true permanence and blessedness to such?' to what there was between Earnscliff and Margaret. Her dewy eyes and face of deep emotion owned that he had interpreted her thought. Theirs would indeed be a disheartening example, he said, if it did not show the strength and peace that distance, sickness, death cannot destroy. 
Yes, to see that church making Margaret happy as she lies smiling on her couch is a lesson of lessons. That what is hallowed must be blessed, said Norman, whatever the sundry and manifold changes. Each was far too humble to deny aloud any inequality with the goodness of Alan and Margaret, knowing that it would be at once disputed, trusting to time to prevent the overestimate, and each believing the other was the one to bring the blessing. But Meta, said Norman, have you heard nothing of, of the elders? Oh, yes, said Meta, smiling. Have not you? I have seen no one. I have, said Meta merrily. Uncle Cosham is delighted. That speech of yours has captivated him. He calls me a wise little woman to have found out your first-rate abilities. There's for you, sir. I don't understand it. Surely he must be aware of my intentions. He said nothing about them. But, of course, Dr. May must have mentioned them. I should have thought so, but I cannot suppose— That he would be willing to let me go? said Meta. But then you know he cannot help it, added she, with a roguish look, at finding herself making one of her saucy independent speeches. I believe you are taking a would-be missionary instead of Norman May, he answered, with a sort of teasing sweetness. All would-be missionaries did not make dear Papa so fond of them, said Meta, very low, and you would not be Norman May without such purposes. The purpose was not inspired at first by the highest motive, said Norman, but it brought me peace, and after the kind of dedication that I inwardly made of myself in my time of trouble, it would take some weighty reason, amounting to a clear duty, or physical impossibility, to make me think I ought to turn back. I believe—the tears rose to his eyes, and he brought out the words with difficulty—that if this greatest of all joys were likely to hinder me from my calling— I ought to seek strength to regard it as a temptation, and to forego it. "'You ought, if it were so,' said Meta, nevertheless holding him tighter. "'I could not bear to keep back a soldier. If this were last year, and I had any tie or duty here, it would be very hard. But no one needs me, and if the health I have always had be continued to me, I don't think I shall be much in the way.' "'There,' drawing back a little and trying to laugh off her feeling— only tell me at once, if you think me still too much of a fine lady. I—you, a fine lady! Did anything ever give you the impression that I did? I shall not get poor Harry into a scrape, shall I? He told me that you said so last spring, and I feared you judged me too truly. After a few exclamations of utter surprise, it flashed on Norman. I know, I know. Harry interpreted my words in his own blunt fashion. Then you did say something like it? "'No, but—but—in short, Meta, these sailors' imaginations go to great lengths. Harry had guessed more than I knew myself, before he had sailed, and taxed me with it. It was a subject I could not bear then, and I answered that you were too far beyond my hopes.' Six years ago,' said Meta slowly, blushing deeper and deeper. "'Some eyes saw it all that time, and you—and—' she added, laughing, though rather tearfully— I should never have known it if Tom had not taken me through the plantations. Not if I had not discovered that your preferences did not lie. Among boudoirs and balls, said Meta. Harry was right. You thought me a fine lady after all. The gay taunt was cut short by a tap at the door, and Flora looked in. Dr. Spencer has brought your things, Norman. I'm sorry to disturb you. But come down, Meta. I ran away very uncivilly to fetch you. I hope it is not too cruel— as she drew Meta's arm into her own, and added, 
I have not been able to speak to George. Meta suspected that, in the wish to spare her, Flora had abstained from seeking him. The evening went off like any other evening. People ate and talked, thought Mrs. Rivers looking very ill and Miss Rivers very pretty. Flora forced herself into being very friendly to Sir Henry, commiserating the disappointment to which she had led him, and she hoped that he suspected the state of affairs, though Tom, no longer supplanted by his elder brother, pursued Meta into the sheltered nook where Flora had favoured her seclusion, to apologise for having left her to the guidance of poor Norman, whose head was with the blackamoors. It was all Harry's fault. "'Nonsense, Tom,' said Harry. "'Don't you think Norman is better company than you any day?' "'Then why did you not walk him off instead of me?' said Tom, turning round sharply. "'Out of consideration for Meta. She will tell you that she was very much obliged to me.' Harry checked himself, for Meta was colouring so painfully that his own sunburned face caught the glow. He pushed Tom's slight figure aside with a commanding move of his broad hand, and said, "'I beg your pardon, upon my word, though I don't know what for.' "'Nor I,' said Meta, rallying herself and smiling. "'You have no pardon to beg. You will know it all to-morrow.' "'Then I know it now,' said Harry, sheltering his face by leaning over the back of a chair, and taming the hearty gaiety of his voice. "'Well done, Meta. There's nothing like old June in all the world. You may take my word for it, and I knew you would have the sense to find it out.' They were well out of sight, and Meta only answered by a good tight squeeze of his kind hand between both her own. Tom, suddenly recovering from his displeasure at being thrust aside, whisked round, dropped on a footstool before Meta, looked up in her face, and said, in such utter amazement, that there was nothing for it but to laugh more uncontrollably than was convenient. "'Come along, Tom,' said Harry, pulling him up by force. "'She does not want any of your nonsense. We will not plague her now.' "'Thank you, Harry,' said Meta. "'I cannot talk rationally just yet. "'Don't think me unkind, Tom.' "'Tom sat in a sort of trance all the rest of the evening. "'Lord Cosham talked to Norman, who felt as if he were being patronized on false pretenses, "'drew into his shell, and displayed none of his first-rate abilities. "'Dr. Spencer discussed his architecture with the archdeacon, "'but his black eyes roamed heedfully after the young gentleman and lady "'in the opposite corners of the room.' and as he drove home afterwards with the youths, he hummed scraps of Scottish songs and indulged in silent smiles. Those at home had been far more demonstrative. Dr. May had arrived, declaring himself the proudest doctor in Her Majesty's dominions, and Ethel needed nothing but his face to explain why, and tell her that dear old June's troubles were over, and their pretty little meadow was their own, a joy little looked for to attend their foundation stone. The dreaded conference with Lord Cosham had proved highly gratifying. There might be something in the fact that he could not help it, which assisted in his ready acquiescence, but he was also a sensible, right-minded man, who thought that the largeness of Meta's fortune was no reason that it should be doubled, considered that, in the matter of connection, the May family had the advantage, and saw in Norman, a young man whom any one might have pleasure in bringing forward, Oxford had established confidence both in his character and talents, and his speech had been such as to impress an experienced man, like Lord Cosham, with an opinion of his powers, that prepared a welcome for him, such as no one could have dared to expect. His lordship thought his niece not only likely to be happier, but to occupy a more distinguished position with such a man as Norman May, than with most persons of ready-made rank and fortune. The blushing and delighted Dr. May had thought himself bound to speak of his son's designs, 
but he allowed that the project had been formed under great distress of mind, and when he saw it treated by so good a man as a mere form of disappointed love, he felt himself reprieved from the hardest sacrifice that he had ever been called on to make, loved little Meta the better for restoring his son, and once more gave a free course to the aspirations that Norman's brilliant boyhood had inspired. Richard took the same view, and the evening passed away in an argument, as if any one had been disputing with them, the father reasoning aloud, the son enforcing it low, that it had become Norman's duty to stay at home to take care of Meta, whose father would have been horrified at his taking her to the antipodes. They saw mighty tasks for her fortune to effect in England. They enhanced each other's anticipations of Norman's career, overthrew abuses before him, heaped distinctions upon him, and made him prime minister and settled his policy before ten o'clock brought their schemes to a close. Mary gazed and believed. Margaret lay still and gently assented. Ethel was silent at first, and only when the fabric became extremely airy and magnificent, put in her word with a vehement dash at the present abuses, which grieved her spirit above all, and, whether vulnerable or not, Norman was to dispose of, like so many giants before Mr. Greatheart. She went upstairs, unable to analyze her sentiments. To be spared the separation would be infinite relief. All this prosperity made her exult. The fair girl at the Grange was the delight of her heart, and yet there was a sense of falling off. She disliked herself for being either glad or sorry, and could have quarrelled with the lovers for perplexing her feelings so uncomfortably. Though she sat up till the party returned, she was inclined to be supposed in bed, so as to put off the moment of meeting. But Margaret, who she hoped was asleep, said from her pillow, "'Ask dear Norman to let me give him one kiss.' She ran down headlong, clutched Norman as he was taking off his greatcoat, told him that Margaret wanted him, and dragged him up without letting him go till she reached the first landing, where she stood still, saying breathlessly, "'New Zealand!' "'If I wished to fail, she would keep me to it.' "'I beg your pardon,' said Ethel, claiming heartily his caress. "'I was wrong to doubt either of you. Now I know how to feel, but Margaret must not wait.' The happy youth, in the flush of love and joy, bent gently, almost tearfully, down in silence to the white form, half seen in the twilight, whose hopes had fleeted away from earth, and who was calmly, softly gliding after them. Hardly a word was uttered, but of all the many heartfelt thoughts that had passed while the face was pressed into Margaret's pillow, and her sympathizing arms round the neck, surely none was ever deeper than was his prayer and vow that his affection should be like hers unearthly and therefore enduring the embrace was all margaret must not be agitated and indeed the events of the day had been too much for her and the ensuing morning brought the fluttering of heart and prostration of strength no longer a novelty and occasion of immediate terror but the token of the waning power of life till she was better her father had no thoughts for aught else but as with many another invalid the relief from present distress was as cheering as if it had been recovery and ere night her placid look of repose had returned and she was devising pretty greetings for her newest daisy perhaps the sobering effect of these hours of anxiety was in norman's favour on entering into conversation with his father those visions, which had had their swing the night before, belonged to the earlier, more untamed period of Dr. May's life, and had melted away in the dim room, made sacred by lingering mementos of his wife, and in the sound of that panting breath and throbbing heart. His vehemence had been, after all, chiefly against his own misgivings, 
and when he heard of his son's resolution and Meta's more than acquiescence, he was greatly touched, and recurred to his kind, sorrowful promise that he would never be a stumbling-block in the path of his children. Still he owned himself greatly allured by the career proposed by Lord Caution, and thought Norman should consider the opportunities of doing good in, perhaps, a still more important and extensive field than that which he had chosen. "'Time was that I should have grasped at such a prospect,' said Norman. "'But I am not the man for it. I have too much ambition, and too little humility. You know, father, how often you have had to come to my rescue, when I was running after success as my prime object.' Vanity Fair is a dangerous place, but you who have sound principles and pure motives—how long would my motives be pure? said Norman. Rivalry and party spirit make me distrust my motives, and then my principles feel the shock. Other men are marked by station for such trials, and may be carried through them, but I am not. Yet some of these men are far from your equals. Not perhaps in speechifying, said Norman, smiling but in steadiness of aim, in patience, in callousness, in seeing one side of the question at once. You judge rightly for your own peace. You will be the happier. I always doubted whether you had nerve to make your wits available. It may be cowardice, said Norman, but I think not. I could burn for the combat, and if I had no scruples, I could enjoy bearing down such as— Of course Dr. May burst in with a political name, and I wish you were at him— "'Whether I could is another matter,' said Norman, laughing. "'But the fact is that I stand pledged, and if I embraced what to me would be a worldly career, I should be running into temptation, and could not expect to be shielded from it.' "'Your old rule,' said Dr. May, "'seek to be less rather than more. But there is another choice. Why not a parsonage at home?' "'Pleasant parishes are not in the same need,' said Norman. "'I wonder what poor old Rivers would say to you.' if he knew what you want to do with his daughter, brought up as she has been, to expose her to the roughness of a colonial life, such as I should hesitate about for your sisters. It is her own ardent desire. True, but are girlish enthusiasms to be trusted? Take care, Norman. Take care of her. She is a bit of the choicest porcelain of humankind, and not to be rudely dealt with. No, indeed." she has the brave enterprising temper to which i fully believe that actual work in a good cause is far preferable to what she calls idleness i do not believe that we are likely to meet with more hardship than she would gladly encounter and would almost nay quite enjoy you do not know what your aunt has had to go through a few years make a great difference in a colony still it may be right for me to go out alone and judge for her but we shall know more if my aunt comes home "'Yes, I could trust a good deal to her. "'She has much of your mother's sense. "'Well, you must settle it as you can with Meta's people. "'I do not think they love the pretty creature better than I have done "'from the first minute we saw her. "'Don't you remember it, Norman?' "'Remember it, do I not, from the frosted cedar downwards. "'It was the first gem of spring in that dreary winter. "'What a fairyland the Grange was to me. "'You may nearly say the same of me,' confessed Dr. May, smiling. "'The sight of that happy little sunny spirit— full of sympathy and sweetness, always sent me brighter on my way. Wherever you may be, Norman, I am glad you have her, being one apt to need a pocket sunbeam. I hope my tendencies are in no danger of depressing her, said Norman, startled. If so, no such thing. She will make a different man of you. You have been depressed by that early shock and the gap at our own fireside. All that we have shared together, Norman— to see you begin on a new score, 
with a bright home of your own, is the best in this world that I could wish for you, though I shall live over my own twenty-two years in thinking of you, and that sweet little fairy. But now go, Norman. She will be watching for you, and news of Margaret. Give her all sorts of love from me. Norman fared better with the uncle than he had expected. Lord Cosham, as a philanthropist, could not with any consistency set his face against missions, even when the cost came so near home and he knew that opposition made the like intentions assume a heroic aspect that maintained them in greater force. He therefore went over the subject in a calm, dispassionate manner, which exacted full and grateful consideration from the young man. The final compromise was that nothing should be settled for a year, during which Norman would complete his course of study, and the matter might be more fully weighed. Mrs. Arnott would probably return, and bring experience and judgment, which would or ought to decide the question, though Meta had a secret fear that it might render it more complicated than ever. However, the engagement and the mission views had both been treated so much more favorably than could have been hoped, that they felt themselves bound to be patient and forbearing. As Meta said, if they showed themselves willful children, they certainly did not deserve to be trusted anywhere." Lord Cosham made his niece listen to a kind exhortation not to press her influence towards a decision that might be repented, when too late to be repaired, without a degrading sense of failure, putting her in mind of the privations that would lose romance by their pettiness, and which money could not remedy, and very sensibly representing that the effect of these on temper and health was to be duly considered as a serious impediment to usefulness. "'It would be worse for him alone,' said Meta. "'That is not certain,' said her uncle. "'A broken-down wife is a terrible drag.' "'I know it is so,' said Meta firmly. "'But risks must be run, and he is willing to take the chance. "'I do not think it can be presumption, for you know I am strong, "'and Dr. May would say if he could not warrant me. "'I fancy household work would be more satisfactory and less tiring "'than doing a season thoroughly, "'and I mean to go through a course of Finchley manuals in preparation.' "'I hope you know what you're doing,' sighed her uncle. "'You see it all couleur de rose.' "'I think not. It is because it is not couleur de rose that I am so much bent upon it. I have had plenty of that all my life. I expect much that will be very disagreeable and not at all heroic. But if I can only make Norman think it fun, that will be one purpose answered. I do believe he will do his work better for having me, and at least I shall pay his passage.' Her uncle shook his head but did not try to say any more. George had begun by loud exclamations against the project, in which he was vehemently abetted by Tom, who primed him with all sorts of outrageous abuse of the niggers and cannibals, who would make Norman's coats out of all shape, and devour little Meta at a mouthful, predictions which Meta accepted most merrily, talking of herself so resignedly, as bound upon a spit, and calling out to be roasted slower and faster, that she safely conducted off their opposition by way of a standing joke. As to Norman's coats, she threatened to make them herself, and silenced Tom for ever by supposing, in malicious simplicity, that he must be able to teach her the most unexceptional cut. Flora kept her opinions to herself. Only once, when urged to remonstrate, she said, "'I could not, I would not.' She was gently and touchingly considerate towards the lovers, silently but unobtrusively obviating all that could jar on their feelings, 
and employing her exquisite tact in the kindest manner she released meta from the expedition to ride silencing scruples on the one hand by a suggestion of poor sir henry and on the other by offering to exchange her for mary the first proposal made mary take such a spring in her chair with eyes so round and cheeks so red and such a shriek about harry and the bucephalus that no one could have borne to say one word in opposition even if it had not been the opinion of the council that sea air would best repair mary's strength ethel had some private fears of a scene since it was one of miss bracy's idiosyncrasies to be hurt whenever mary was taken out of her hands as she went to announce the design in dread lest this shock should destroy the harmony that had prevailed for many months nay she almost believed since the loss of the alcestis had been known she was agreeably surprised miss bracy thought mary in need of the change and discussed both her and blanche in so pleasant and sensible a manner that ethel was quite relieved she partook in mary's anticipations of pleasure forwarded her preparations and was delighted with her promise of letters promises that mary bestowed so largely in the fullness of her heart that there were fears lest her whole time should be spent in writing her soft heart indulged in a shower of tears when she wished them all good-bye and ethel and blanche found the house was very empty without her but that was only till meta came in from a walk with norman and under the plea of trying to supply mary's place did the work of five marys and a great deal besides nothing could be happier than meta's visit brightening the house so that the mays thought they had never known half her charms helping whatever was going on yet ready to play with daisy tell stories to aubrey hear tom's confidences talk to margaret read with norman and teach richard singing for his school children the only vexation was that every one could not always engross her entirely and dr may used to threaten that they should never spare her to that long-legged fellow norman she had persuaded bellairs to go and take care of flora and mary instead of the french maid a plan which greatly satisfied margaret who had never liked the looks of coralie and which meta held to be a great emancipation she persuaded old nurse to teach her to be useful and margaret used to declare that she witnessed scenes as good as a play in her room where the little dexterous scholar apparently in jest but really in sober earnest wild instruction from the old woman and made her experiments between smiles and blushes and merrily glorying in results that promised that she would be a notable housewife whether it were novelty or not she certainly had an aptitude and delight in domestic details such as ethel could never attain and as dr may said the one performed by a little finger what the other laboured at with a great mind in the schoolroom meta was as highly appreciated she found an hour for helping blanche in her music and for giving what was still more useful an interest and spirit to studies where it must be owned poor good mary had been a dead weight she enlivened miss bracy so much and so often contrived a walk or a talk with her that the saucy blanche told hector that she thought ethel would be quite second fiddle with miss bracy no such thing miss bracy's great delight was in having a listener for her enthusiasm about miss ethel she had been lately having a correspondence with a former schoolfellow who was governess in a family less considerate than the mays and who poured out in her letters feelings much like those with which miss bracy had begun nothing could be more salutary than to find herself repeating all ethel's pieces of advice and one day when her friend had been more distressed than usual she called ethel herself to consult on her answer owning how much she was reminded of herself indeed she added i am afraid it would only tease you to hear how much i am indebted to your decision and kindness 
Nay, said Ethel, laughing her awkward laugh, you have often had to forget my savage ways. Pray don't say that. I think, said Ethel, breaking in, the philosophy is this. I believe that it is a trying life. I know teaching takes a great deal out of one, and loneliness may cause tendencies to dwell on fancied slights and trifles that might otherwise be hurried over. But I think the thing is to pass them over and make a conscience of turning one's mind to something fresh, as you made me do when you brought me amusing books and taught me botany, and still more when you took to working for the infant school. Yes, I think the way to be happy and useful is to get up many interests, so as to be fresh and vigorous, and think not at all of personalities. There's a truism. Very true, though, said Miss Bracy. Indeed, all your kindness and consideration would never have done me half the good they have, dear Miss Ethel, if you had not taught me that referring all to one's own feelings and self is the way to be unhappy. Just so, said Ethel, it is the surest way for any one to be miserable. If I could only persuade poor dear Ellen to think that, even if a slight were real, it ought to be borne forgivingly and not brooded over. Ah, you are laughing. Perhaps you have said the same about me. You would forgive it now, I think, said Ethel. I never thought I did not forgive. I did not see that brooding over vexations was not pardoning them. I have told her so now, and, oh, if she could but have seen how true sorrows are born here, she would be cured, like me, of making imaginary ones. None could help being better for living with Papa, said Ethel. Ethel made Miss Bracy happy by a kiss before she left her. It was a cheering belief that, whatever the future trials of her life might be, the gentle little lady would meet them with a healthier mind, more vigorous in overlooking troubles, and without punctilious sensitiveness on the lookout for affronts. Believing all things, bearing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, would be to her the true secret of serenity of spirits. Ethel might not have been blameless or consistent in her dealings in this difficult intercourse, but her kind heart, upright intention, and force of character had influence far beyond her own perception. Indeed, she knew not that she had personal influence at all, but went on in her own straightforward humility. End of Part 2, Chapter 23 Recording by Brooke Favorite, www.alongsidemom.com